The opinions and views expressed on this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. For more information about this show or other programs on KUCI, please log on to KUCI.org for the latest program schedule. Hi, this is Ian from Gomez. You are listening to KUCI, University of California, Urban, California. You're listening to Real People of Orange County, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin. This show is a fun and informative look inside the lives of Orange County's best and brightest. These are people who serve their community in a meaningful capacity on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine. Well, good afternoon. And, yeah, good afternoon. Look who's here. And welcome to, uh-oh, how did we just lose the lights? I don't know. It just, That's not good. It got really sultry in here. I think they gave us used light bulbs, and they just all went out at once. Well, maybe step away and draw them up a little so we can see. I, I like it. I like sultry lighting when I'm doing my radio show, but that was just a little bit much. <laughs> a little sultry. Well, anyway, um, if you're just tuning in, this is Real People OC, and I'm your host, Kimberly Martin, and today is June 20th, 2013. Wow. I mean, where does the time go? I have no idea where it's been going, but it's just been it's just been like a whirlwind. So, I mean, if you if you know that special voice on the other end, you know that KUCI's favorite engineer Heather McCoy is with me today. Yeah. Nice to have you back. Thank you for being it's here. It's nice to be back. I, um, I'm glad the work schedule worked out this time. I know. I love having you just dot in and from time to time. So we'll we'll have you as a featured a, a featured engineer from whenever whenever you can show up. How about that? That works. I enjoy that. Okay. All right. Well, as you know out there, um, for our listeners, our show is dedicated to highlighting some of Orange County's most interesting people, and we feature, feature folks from all walks of Orange County life. So if you have an interesting person or an idea for our show, please go to our website, contact me. Our website is www.realpeopleoc.com and get in touch with us. And we'd love to hear your ideas. I'm, I'm really open to suggestions. So it's, it's all good. Um, so I'm going to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is Beth Ann Boardman. Oops, I forgot to ask you if I should be calling you Dr. Boardman. You can if you want Ooh, to. Oh, how exciting. Dr. <laughs> Dr. Boardman's in the house. Um, yeah. But she's just wonderful. She happened to be in our studio on the very first day I recorded my first show. I don't know. Do you remember that? I that remember was my that. first show. And she sat quietly in the corner while I recorded that show. And she was here supporting a friend. And I just kind of had a feeling after talking to her briefly that she possessed an interesting story and I was just I was like oh well you know we got to give you some airtime at some point and and hear about what you're doing she's here to talk to us a little bit about the work that she's doing and what led her to find her passion and what what how you fell into your PhD as well so welcome Dr. Boardman thank you I'm really happy to be here <laughs> I'm gonna call you Beth is that okay yes please <laughs> okay good well um one of the fun things we're going to do today is dive into darkness you have an interesting background, but it, obviously you've, you have a body of work that you got your PhD through it with, mm-hmm. and so we're going to talk about that. You're going to share a topic, topic um, about teens and the issues that they experience. This rather dark time. You've been swimming around in it for a while. You raised two of your own kids. Um, Beth was a nurse in Colorado for many years where she raised her kids. Well, you actually brought them out to California and raised them here, mm-hmm. but um, you were born in Colorado, so good salt of the earth kind of gal. And uh, went on, after a career in nursing, you went on to get your master's in English. So, um, ooh, I can't hear myself anymore. Can you? Yeah. Okay. Something's wrong. Might be me. Um, 
But anyway, I I want to know how you found your way. You made your way to West, and is that when you found out about Joseph Campbell? My dad had uh, introduced me to Joseph Campbell's work through Bill Moyer's The Power of Myth program. I remember seeing that on PBS. On PBS. That's in right. In the late 80s. And uh, I had no interest in that at all at the time. Well, so for our listeners, if you don't know who Joseph Campbell is, he is the renowned mythologist and scholar of the world's sacred stories. I love that. So Mm -hmm. that's where we're going to start our discussion today. Sounds great. Okay, good. Um, Joseph Campbell says that myth is the secret opening through which the inexhaustible energies of the cosmos pour into human manifestation. Beautiful. It is love beautiful. That. So tell us how you found your way to Joseph Campbell and what that started inside of you. Well, uh, like I said, my father first uh, introduced me to Joseph Campbell's work, and I was intrigued but disinterested because I was in my early 20s, and I was trying to separate from my parents, and I didn't want to be interested in anything they were interested in, and um, which makes me laugh because now I've just completed my PhD from what I affectionately called Joseph Campbell University because Joseph Campbell was actually one of the founders of uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute, where I got my PhD from. He's one of the founders. So it okay. just, it's so funny that I should reject him, you know, wholeheartedly when I first... Uh, but I wasn't really rejecting him. I didn't know anything about him at the time. So anyway, um, I 20 years later, fast forward, I have had my own children and I'm going through some challenges in my own life. And I came across his work again. I also had been studying um, world sacred dance and a lot of just cultural traditions from around the world. It's always been an interest of mine. And through these um, interests, I, I found Joseph Campbell's work. And he writes about world sacred stories. And uh, I started listening to his tapes and everything he said I just started it started a, a stream of ideas and insights in my mind, and I couldn't get enough. Okay, so give us an example so people can relate to a sacred story that we might all be familiar with. Well, a sacred story we might be familiar with in this country is the story of Jesus. Okay. And um, that story can be looked at from many different angles. It can be looked at from as literal truth, and it can also be looked at from a symbol symbolical standpoint, a metaphorical standpoint, where Jesus's life becomes a metaphor for the life of anyone who is trying to grow and develop and become their best self. Okay. Now, I remember back, I think it's sixth grade when we start studying mythology in school. I can't remember Mm -hmm. exactly. I'd have to go study my California state standards. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I, I remember just absolutely loving Greek mythology. Is that where all of this comes from? Are they the first, or has, oh. are there mythologies in every culture that start to look similar? That's such a good question. And when people hear the word mythology, that's usually what they think of first is, oh, you, you're studying Greek mythology. But you're right. There are mythologies from all around the world. Every culture has a set of sacred stories that it uses to interpret life, to understand how to live life, and also how to guide the um, citizens or the, the inhabitants of that of that land. So every culture has a set of mythological stories. And um, <laughs> so, okay, so give an example of um, well, you maybe have... uh, one that people are familiar with other than the one we just referenced earlier. 
Oh, well, gosh. Um, Santa Claus is actually a story out of Europe. Um, St. Nicholas. The perfect um, one. Yeah, and there, there are stories from South America. Um, Hawaii has stories. The Native American um, traditions are full of stories. You've heard of trickster tales? No, I haven't. About coyote tales? No, tell me oh, about Okay, those. so... So the trickster, and, and now Norse mythology is, is really big. They're, um, the Vikings that, yeah. on History Channel and Game of Thrones is kind of based on some Viking mythology too. But um, back to the Native American trickster tales. These are, these are tales that are basically teaching tales, but they're, they're, you are taught through making mistakes. Like the trickster tales teach you that you learn through making mistakes. And that's kind of a very simple description of, of what they do. But it's a st- the rabbit and, and coyote. Wiley Coyote, the uh, the Hanna-Barbera, um, yes. that's based on the Native American trickster tales. It's oh, all it taken is. from Coyote, Wiley Coyote. He can never catch the roadrunner. He's always falling off of cliffs in giant explosions. He's reaching for things too big for him to handle. He's trying to get somewhere too fast, too soon, and he always encounters disaster. And and this is part of what the, the trickster tales teach us, that there you can't get everything at once. You can't be God. That's another thing that the trickster tales teach. And you find the trickster as a character in all the world's mythologies. All of them have them. In the, North, in the Norse mythology, it's Loki. Um, the Hawaiians have a trickster, too. I can't remember. Maui, I believe, is the name of the Hawaiian trickster. Um, they're everywhere. So very that's, cool. Yeah. That's, Do you have a favorite uh, culture that you've spent your focus on? I've spent a lot of time um, studying Native American traditions, but the term Native American is way too broad. I mean, each tribe is a very discrete culture. So you can, I really feel like I can't say I study Native American tradition because that's thousands of tribes. I've, I've concentrated mostly on Hopi, Navajo, and Lakota. I have a little bit of familiarity with Cherokee uh, tribes, too. But, but just a li- you know, just, I, I mean, I've spent years studying, but that's just, I'm still a beginner. Still a beginner, so. Okay. So where, so where, when you intersect with Joseph Campbell, and you, you've had some accomplishments with, with his group. So mm-hmm. do you want to talk about the roundtable a little bit? Sure. Um, what happened was I, I had my children. I started listening to Joseph Campbell's uh, stuff and then uh, vi- uh, audio tapes at the time and also some videotapes. And a friend of mine invited me to a public program at Pacifica Graduate Institute, and it was called The World Behind the World. And I had no idea what Pacifica was. I had no idea what this conference was. But my daughter was like three or four years old. And I was just like, I don't care what it is. I'm I'm ready to go away for a weekend. Yeah, so I went <laughs> Get out of the house. Like, it was I'll great. study anything. <laughs> it's great, but you know, being a mom is a twenty four seven job. And so I was like, sure, I don't care what this is about. So I went to Pacifica to this public program, and I and the first day I couldn't understand a lot, and I was very suspicious. I was like, you know, you grew up in California, you have a bullshit detector, right? So I probably can't say that word. Probably but, not. <laughs> sorry. Um, Beep. But, um, but anyway, so, but by the end of this three-day weekend, I w- my reaction was, these people are speaking my language. They were speaking about mythology, about metaphor, about poetry, and I just got hungry for more. And that's how I got involved in the Joseph Campbell Foundation. I decided at that time I would like to start a discussion group 
um, just to create a community where I live of people who wanted to speak about mythology because I didn't know anyone around me who wanted to speak about mythology. Were they afraid to speak about it or just weren't educated No, enough? people just don't. Yeah, people just didn't know. A lot of people didn't know about Joseph Campbell or just weren't interested or, or thought mythology was just talking about Achilles and and Ariadne. Heels. Yeah, yeah, all those things. So, yeah, there wasn't a lot of understanding uh, about what mythology was, uh, or, or I didn't know the people who knew okay. or who wanted to talk about it. Um, where's the Joseph Campbell Foundation located? The foundation uh, is located in Northern California. Okay. Um, it's run by several people. One is Bob Walter is the president and CEO, and uh, I, and carries on Joseph Campbell's work. It makes his work available to the public. There are a lot of free downloads you can get. It's jcf.org. jcf.org. That's for mm-hmm. Joseph Campbell Foundation. Yeah, and you can org. you can find there are, there's tons of material on that website. There are lots of things you can download for free, excerpts of books, quotes. Um, there are forums that you can discuss things live. Um, and there are, there are audio downloads that you can get. Um, there's a lot of stuff for purchase, but there's a lot of stuff for free as well. And now there's uh, there are videos and DVDs and um, all, all kinds of, of stuff. Yeah. Okay. Uh, okay. So how about your discussion group? How did that how did that oh, go? Yes. Isn't it still in in existence today? Yes. In Orange yes. County? We just recently went to quarterly meetings from monthly meetings. We started meeting. I think it was in 2006, and we've met every month, um, almost every month until just a couple of months ago and now we we're moving to quarterly meetings. Okay. But um but that was why I started that discussion group. Uh I was like I need to find people in my community to talk about mythology with because I I couldn't be going to school yet. I didn't think I could go to Pacifica yet and I I didn't know how often I could do public programs and you know it's taken me away from my little kids on the weekends and so I started this discussion group once a month and I found lots of people who knew about Joseph Campbell. Lots right. of them. So uh, what is the name of your discussion group? Well, it's called the San Clemente Joseph Campbell Mythological Roundtable. Okay. It's part of um it's part of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Mythological roundtables are a trademark um, of the Joseph Campbell Foundation. Okay. So you have to be, you have to sort of uh, work your way in with them and, and make yourself known and, and prove that you want to do, do this work, um, you know, have these discussions. It's free. These, these groups are free. It's just a community discussion group. But they do ask that we... Um, follow guidelines. Follow some guidelines, very right. very minimal guidelines, but trademark. You know, put our trademark on the name, and because we are using Joseph Campbell's work, so right. we want to acknowledge that. Okay, so give me an example of a meeting and how that would go if you were at the roundtable. You just okay. Hi, yeah. I found a new myth. <laughs> oh yeah, hey. Well, my, all roundtables are very different. I mean, some people have some people have hundreds of audience members and uh, they'll have guest speakers and they'll show movies and have discussions uh, you'll have lectures those are some other people have have uh, roundtables where they'll have lectures um, my roundtable is what what I call a salon 
Actually, I didn't call it that. Bob Walter called it that. I, I just I called it. That. I just called it a little group that meets in my little house. That's what I called it. <laughs> but um, we have like anywhere from six to fifteen people that come regularly, and we just meet in my living room. And we all are Joseph Campbell fans, so we like to watch one of the DVDs. The foundation has produced a, a lot of new material since The Power of Myth was on. Um, there are three series right now called Mythos, M-Y-T-H-O-S, one, two, and three, that are uh, following Joseph Campbell on his last lecture tour, the last two, or year, two years of his life. And they filmed all those lectures. And over the last decade, uh, the Joseph Campbell Foundation has been editing and compiling these lectures onto these new DVDs called Mythos. So we, we, we watch a lecture, and the rule is in our group that there are no rules. And so if someone wants to stop the DVD and, and say, oh, my God, that was cool, or, or I disagree, or I agree, or I want to share this experience, the floor is really open to um, discussion. And to me, that's what a roundtable is. It's discussing back and forth and, and sharing ideas and experiences. So that's what ours is, is set up like. How long do the meetings go? Do they? Do you have a time limit, or do you mm-hmm. just they can go in all through the night? Oh and... gosh, no, because <laughs> we're all humans and we all we're all exhausted adults. Yes. So um, <laughs> our meetings are from seven to nine on Friday Friday evening. Okay. There's another uh, Joseph Campbell roundtable that recently started up in Dana Point, oh, and it's on Wednesdays. You. It's all, I think it's on the last Wednesday of the month. I don't, re- I don't remember if it's 7.30, but you can find information about roundtables in your area um, mm-hmm. by going to jcf.org. And they're all over the world, oh, roundtables. So that's how they would get a hold of you if mm-hmm. they were local and yes. wanted to attend? Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Okay. Very nice. Well, um, one of the things that once you started studying this, you, di- you dove into this concept of darkness and adolescence in America. Um, how did you get? How did you lead yourself to that through the myth- work you were doing in mythology? Well, I, I don't want to make this too long of a story, but it really the topic chose me. I, I didn't really choose it. Um, on the other hand, I remember when I graduated from nursing school in the 1980s, I w- wanted to work with teenagers, but I was practically a teenager myself. I was 22. I had no idea how that would work, but I just had this desire to, to work with teenagers someday. So that got put on hold for the last 20 years while I've done all these other things. Then um, I was raising my own kids, and I was attending classes at Pacifica. Um, it, if you get a Ph.D. in mythologies there, it's a five-year program. And so you have three years of classwork, and then you have approximately two years where you work on your dissertation, and that's on your own time. So I was already in my classwork at Pacifica when my kids were young teenagers, and I was just observing them, and I was observing their friends. And, you know, before my kids were teenagers, you had, like, the punks and the, the goths. <laughs> yes. My kids grew up a little bit after that time, more like the uh, emo, emo kids <laughs> and a little bit, and, uh, a little bit after that. I don't know what an emo that. kid is. There, it's already passe, so Yay. don't worry. Don't worry. <laughs> well, they're still around. Just look for people with greasy hair, and yeah, they're around, but don't call them an emo because they won't like that term. Don't don't use that term. The term is passe. Let me put it that way. So I was just watching these kids, and and some of the ki- and I'm driving the carpools, and you know, 
teenagers beware. Your parents have ears. You know, they're driving. You're, they might be driving you, but they actually have ears. They're <laughs> but, listening to But everything. parents, is, it's a wonderful place to really get your ear to the ground with what's going on with teenagers' lives. Because I found that a lot of times, not my kids, they knew I was listening, but their friends would talk like there was no adult in the car. And I'm listening to them share some pretty dark stuff. And I was realizing that uh, even middle class teenagers, even because I drove a carpool of mixed economic backgrounds, there were rich kids, there were middle class kids, there were not middle class kids, and um, I heard kids of all ages of all socioeconomic backgrounds talking about drunk parents, Ooh. about absentee parents, about all kinds of abuse, physical, sexual. I mean, there is no socioeconomic limit to addiction and abuse. It's it's anywhere and everywhere because it's a human disease. Right. So it's not exclusive to one class and it, it doesn't exclude other classes. Right. And this was very sobering and saddening to me. I knew some of these kids and I, I never knew that they were suffering these kinds of things at home. So that made me really... Uh, feel so much compassion for, you know, when we, talk, we we complain about teenagers and their horrible music or whatever, I thought, you know what, I would be playing horrible music too if I had some of this going on in my home. You know, maybe that's the way they get their emotions out was, was what I was thinking at the time. And then another thing that happened, my, my daughter and I, and she knows that I tell this story, we were back to school shopping and she was, I think, going into fifth grade or, or something like that. And I'm picking up t-shirts with little flowers on them and going, here, do you like this? And she's like, no, not really. And then she'd hold up a t-shirt with like skulls. Now they were happy skulls. They were like neon green. skulls. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Green and fuchsia and yellow and orange with roses coming out of their eyes and and so they weren't like black death skulls. They were happy. Right. And I'm like, what is the thing with this death? The death in teens. What is the thing? Right. And that translated, uh, it became a topic of one of my um, papers in school. And one thing led to another. And over the course of the next couple of years, I realized that was a topic that I lost myself in. When I started to do research on this, hours would go by, days would go by. I could talk about it forever. And somebody said to me, that might be what your dissertation is supposed to be on. Oh, very nice. And I was like, light bulb. <laughs> you know? Yeah. There aren't too many moms dealing with difficult teens, not that yours were difficult, <laughs> but that would want to go spend more time, like you said here, diving into darkness. So well, it was rather brave of you. Maybe you were able to because your kids weren't in a miserable place. Well, I... I, you know, I think part of it is I have a background as a nurse. So okay. I'm trained in the caring profession. I care, yeah. you know, I care. And I was a teenager. You know, sometimes we talk about, as adults, we, we adults, we, we sit around and talk about them like they're other, like they're some kind of alien species. We were all teenagers, I'm pretty sure. I don't think we got born and then all of a sudden we ended up 35 with three kids, you know. So... We were all teenagers. I know that every adult in this listening audience had a moment or two of awkwardness as they grew up. And there might have been more than a moment or two. There might have been a lot of torture, you know, self-imposed torture, whatever. Um, so why why should we forget that and, and act like this generation is the first one to do weird things? You right, know, it's just right. not true. No, it's true. And you, there's evidence of it throughout time. Yes. So it was, it was, it, I mean, it was did you know that the waltz was considered a 
revolutionary, rebellious, risque dance. I'm sure it Isn't was. Isn't that hilarious? I think it, one of her vowels, classical uh, pieces in the, like the 1850s, like 1915 or something like that, caused a riot. And, yeah. And, yeah, it's just, you can't believe that caused a riot, but it did. Yeah. And, Mozart was like an emo kid. He was yeah. like, he was like a cutting edge <laughs> musician, you know? He was breaking all the rules. Thank goodness. Yeah. Well, so if you're just tuning in, we have Beth Ann Boardman with us. And Beth is um, a, a graduate of Pacific. Well, you just recently got your PhD mm-hmm. through uh, Pacifica Graduate Institute in Santa Barbara. And your your doctorate is in mythological studies. So she's sharing with us her dissertation, which is titled uh, Diving into Darkness. She did her work in adolescence in the United States. And we're, we're catching up on that. So just let's go on from there. Let's talk about what are the central um, elements to your dissertation. Well, the central element is looking at this question of why are adolescents attracted to images of darkness, risky behavior, uh, uh, violent movies, uh, violent video games? Why are they, you know, and then you've got the goths and uh, of course some of these trends are passe, but they're not gone and Uh, I I just was coming to us in another shape. Exactly. Yeah. And so why are teens like always uh, trying to break the molds? Why are they always trying to rebel? Um, Although this generation, they say, is not as rebellious. I'm not sure that that's true or not. I can. Yeah, I can vouch for that. Yeah. (laughs) You think they're less rebellious? Oh, yeah. You know, I think it's I think it takes a different form. Oh, totally. Then less rebellious than we were. I think it kind of started maybe, I don't know, maybe the generation from previous to mine or no, i'm sorry the one that came after mine it was just mm-hmm. like we were listening to like punk rock and all this stuff and then the generation after mine uh was into nsync and it was just like wow that's really rebellious there <laughs> and so yeah well the each each generation rebels against the one before it so yeah that's true so oh, so that was their reaction be really dark <laughs> well yeah i mean who knows you know the the thing is though with the internet it has totally changed the playing field not not that there's a playing a game well, going on kind of is but yeah, it's totally changed things because you can have communication on a level that we've never had before in the history of humanity and one of the ways i look at this current generation is they're, if they're rebelling, it's because they're not doing things the way we did it. They're on the internet communicating with each other. I love reading all these articles that say there's much, you know, when you're on the internet, you're not communicating with people. People, kids today can't communicate because they're on the internet or they're texting. I'm like, but they're communicating. They're always communicating. They're hooked in. But some of the vital signs of communicating is talking face-to-face. It's and true. so you miss cues and stuff like that. That's very true. But there's a whole new area of cues yeah. that that they have developed and learned. And I'm, I'm definitely in favor of face-to-face interaction. And I do think that's a skill that needs to be developed. But it's, I'm just saying that it's not that they're not communicating. They're just communicating in a way that's new to us. Yeah. And, and I remember my parents, um, we had telephones, of course, when I was a kid, but they were attached to the wall, and we didn't have portable phones when I was a kid either. You couldn't go away. And my parents were like, why are you always on the phone? You know, why are you always on the phone talking? Why don't you go out? Why don't you? But, you know, if my friends lived a mile or two away and it was through traffic and I couldn't get there, we talked on the phone. That's what we did. And so each generation has a new way of communicating, I'm thinking. Right. And this is their way, and we're thinking that they're missing something. But the same has happened each generation. 
because I, I finally got a cell phone, and then everybody's like, you can't text? And I'm like, yes, I have to call. Thank you very much. And so, I know. Yeah. It's really funny. I know. Yeah. It's a, or it's you a, can't get email on your phone, because if you can't get email on your phone, it's you're It's a an miracle. Idiot. Yeah, you uh-huh. really have to stay, uh, you just stay on top of it, because there's a lot, a lot to be gained from, from this technology. Okay, so let's go back to the central theme of darkness. Yes. Why is this... Let's just say this this dark period in a young person's life. Why does it seem to be so essential to their actual awakening? Well, it's such a great question. Um, it's essential to everyone's awakening. And um, I try not to say us and them too much because we are, it's we, it's us. Oh, we did this too. And I definitely feel the us them thing going on right <laughs> I now. I know, I know. But you know, it helped me to start thinking of myself as as someone who's been through that and it's not in us and them it helped me a lot but um the reason is everyone goes through this because childhood dies and the 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 way i came to this uh discovery or this insight i was watching it was at a joseph campbell group one night in my house and we were watching one of the dvds i don't remember which one it was and he was discussing rites of passage adolescent you've heard of that term oh yeah absolutely yeah. yes right so he's discussing rites of passage and and they were showing typical scenes of this you know new guinea tribe and all this horrible stuff they were doing to the boys through this rite of passage and the and bill moyers i believe it was asked him why do they do this what what's the point of all this and he's and joseph campbell said because children have to die to their childhoods and that just really struck me and i started thinking of like even Demeter and Persephone that Greek myth right there is a time where you're no longer a child period do you want to talk about that one a little bit Demeter and Persephone yeah oh sure yeah but but this is a time you know every child male male or female your innocence eventually goes you know you grow up your neurons change your thinking changes your experience happens and you're no longer an innocent child and so that's part of what adolescence is. It's learning to go through the transition from the innocence of childhood to the terrible burden of responsibility of being an adult. And as Joseph Campbell said, life is violent. Life is about killing life. Even, you know, I have a nephew who won't even eat a carrot because it's killing the carrot. He'll only eat something that falls off a tree or something like that. That was already going to die anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. So, so, you know, life is violent if you think about it. You know, animals are killing animals all the time. We're killing things in our own stomachs every day. So that's that's the, the burden of being an adult. Okay. Do you want to talk about Demeter, Demeter and Persephone? Persephone? Yeah. D- okay. Do you want me to tell that story? Yeah, or? just a little brief. Well, the brief the brief version of the story is, is Persephone is the young uh, teenage girl. And she's playing with some friends of her mother's, uh, sort of a... A group of, of women are all out on this meadow, and they're gathering flowers, and it's a beautiful day, and I don't know where Demeter is at the moment. She's doing goddess things. You know, she's the goddess of the harvest. And so Persephone is out with her friends and her mother's friends gathering flowers, and suddenly, there are many different versions of this story, but this version, a crack opens in the earth. A giant black chasm opens up, and out of this crack rides a black horse... Uh, horse and carriage, four black horses, I think. And Hades, the god of the underworld, comes up from the underworld and kidnaps Persephone and takes her without a scream down to the underworld. And all that's left of of her is, is a little bunch of narcissi that she'd been gathering. And she disappears. And Demeter realizes after a time that, that Persephone is gone and she goes into 
grief and and she's panicked where's my daughter where's my daughter and she scours the earth and as she's looking for her daughter she neglects her duties and the all the living things start to die all the wheat dies and the flowers die and winter comes and you know this uh it ravages the earth this winter and and infertility ravages the earth and she she goes to zeus and demands an answer and it turns out zeus and hades had made this arrangement for some other reason that Hades could have Demeter's daughter oh, for his wife. Nice. So they go into negotiations, and I'm really telescoping the story. Fair enough. They, they go into negotiations, and they, they eventually agree that Persephone will spend anywhere from three to six months in the underworld, which is not hell. It's just the world of the dead. Okay. It's not hell. And then she'll spend anywhere from six to nine months in the upper world with her mother. With her mother. So when, when Persephone is gone... The living things die. Her mother grieves. And that's winter. And when Persephone comes back, spring comes back to the earth and the green things grow and the flowers bloom. Oh, beautiful. When she's with her mother. And I actually understand that feeling <laughs> not that dramatically. 24 hours for yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. When my daughter's home from college, I'm just happy. I feel normal. And when mm. she's gone, it takes me a while to adjust. And so when she's in the underworld, is Persephone growing into a woman? Now, this is very interesting. She agrees to marry Hades, and by virtue of marrying Hades, who is a god, Persephone becomes a queen and a goddess. So when she, in other words, embraces her darkness, she finds her power. She becomes the queen. So it's not a loss to her at all. Okay. Um, do you want to read this? Sure. I did that for you. Oh, thank Beth you. also writes, uh, Dr. Boardman also writes <laughs> poetry. And um, we're going to show you how you can find her on her blog in a little while, too. Well, oh, this is so nice of you to ask me to read this. This this is a poem I wrote called Queen of the Dark. And uh, I, I revised it to put at the end of my dissertation. I wrote it before I wrote the dissertation. But when I finished the dissertation, I knew that this, I really wanted this poem to go there. So this is called Queen of the Dark. I am the queen of darkness. Persephone's thought that first night in Hades. It must have been strange, those first seasons. I live forever between the worlds. Married to the dark, honored and revered as powerful and queenly in the kingdom of the dead. Then, months later, becoming the daughter of Earth again. Hermes, my trusted soulmate, reunites me with those I love. Was midnight her favorite time, as it has become mine? Always on point, poised between yesterday and today? Oh, this mercurial spirit knows all of me, my light and my shadow. Of all the gods, they knew both worlds, each married to the cycle, saw loss and becoming, the enlivened, the entombed, herald of change, clever trickster, how I jump upon glimpsing your winged feet. We ride this planet as it whirls through space, spinning day to night to day again, our tenderly searching hearts broken open and closed time and again. Oh, dear ones, though you live in the between, 
you are in divine territory. Perhaps, in our striving, we forget the unforgettable, how life contains all opposites, marries dark to light, dances and grieves. The only constant is loss and return. We are the stone and the light within the stone, breaking and reforming on the way to ourselves. It's beautiful. Thank you. So I'm struck by this because these themes that we've been given from ancient times really as a gift for today, how do we use them? That's such a great question. You know, and I didn't like Greek mythology when I was in high school. I, I thought it was like, these oh, are sad it. stories, man. I mean, people are getting tortured. Like, yeah. you, one false step and you're pinned to a rock for the rest of eternity. That'll teach you. <laughs> but but that was, I wasn't quite getting it back then. But, um, but what they teach us is how to live. Because everybody is born, which is a stressful experience, believe it or not. Uh, everyone goes through adolescence. Now we they didn't call it adolescence in the old days, but everyone transitions Did from they childhood. Have a term for it? No, because there really wasn't such an in between period as there is today. Well they did have rights of Juvenile though. you would call it a juvenile phase. So that would be like the medical term kind okay. of. So they probably I don't really I don't really know what different cultures called older children or, or younger adults. I mean, it was something that they were taken through. Traditional cultures take kids through the transition with a proscribed series of ceremonies that acknowledge the loss. And that's kind of the point that I get to in my dissertation. I mean, many people today have already written about the, the need for rites of passage, that we don't have rites of passage in our contemporary culture. But what I, what I, what I go forward to in my dissertation is saying we need to help them. It's not just helping them transition. It's helping them mourn the loss of childhood. Right. We don't have to do that for several years, mm-hmm. but we have to acknowledge it at some point. And when we tell kids, uh, there's nothing but you know positivity to be gained by growing up. You know, you're just gonna if you just follow the rules and obey and achieve and uh, conform, you will be happy. You know, one plus one plus one plus one equals four. You'll you'll be fine. Well, that's not true. You know, you know that bad things happen in every life. Accidents. Natural disasters, illnesses, deaths, everybody dies. You know, life is fatal. <laughs> no one gets out of here alive. <laughs> these, right. are, these are things that I've heard from other people that are true. Um, but so my point is that to, to pause and acknowledge the loss, acknowledge the grief. And sometimes all, that's all it takes to get through a dark time is to just acknowledge the pain that you're currently feeling. But we do this over and over again in our lives. It doesn't stop at adolescence. You remake yourself when you become a parent. You remake yourself when you get a new job that makes you into a different person. It takes you into a different skill set. It gives you different challenges. Each new phase of our life, we remake ourselves. And there is a transition period where we go through a death and rebirth, a loss and recovery, menopause um, for men and women, you know, male menopause, they're calling it. and when your children leave home for college, when you retire, these are all times where you are having to reevaluate who you are. And sometimes there's a lot of loss with that. 
Okay, so I want to talk a little bit more about the adolescence because that being so clear from a society standpoint, we can see those kids when they're in the thick of it. Mm-hmm. Why, why does it end up being such a much more darker time for them than the rest of us when we're going through our vicissitudes, if you will? Life well, I'm not changes. sure it is darker. Um, if it is, I would say it's because the culture as a whole doesn't help them understand that what they're feeling is a normal part of the process. We tend to say what's wrong with them. We say them, you know, what's wrong with them? Why are they doing this? Um, And we tend to forget that we also had feelings of awkwardness, of not blending in, or of an overwhelming need to blend in. Um, Do you ever remember your first date or your first kiss or the first time that you you know, got up in front of a class to deliver a paper or, you know, there are awkward times and all of us have them. So we tend to forget that. And when we, when we push them, what I, I I say, we're pushing them towards the light, meaning happiness, um, accomplishment, obedience, or not obedience, but happiness, accomplishment, uh, those kinds of things, or lightness. Um, We push them towards these things. Then we deny the time of mourning that also needs to happen. We don't, we don't say, I know that it's sad and it's scary maybe. And, but, you know, we, we say, just keep working, you know, keep trying, keep conforming, keep following the rules. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't encourage our children to, to try to achieve and to, to follow some rules. I'm not saying we, we tell them not to do that. I'm just saying, in addition, we have to acknowledge that there is a loss that is occurring. It's just such a scary time for parents and adults because mm-hmm. obviously you feel a sense of being out of control. But what what is it, do you think there's a disconnect? Because this is one of the things that Joseph Campbell does talk about. I love when he says... Um, that we really need to study these things for us to reach our own humanity, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And, <clears throat> but when you see it so palpable and so, I mean, I remember this being young. I mean, my thoughts and my emotions were so much yes. more intense than they've ever been since then. Mm-hmm. And I really wish that I would have harnessed that time a little bit more effectively yeah, uh, and done something more richly with it. I, mm-hmm. I thought about doing it at the time, but didn't you're so busy being young and yeah. and stupid really so that you don't, you don't get, I still have that intensity, honestly. Well, that's it never good. went away. That's wonderful. Then you should harness it and do something with it because I do see people like I see people. Um, and I, this could be completely reckless to say this, but I see alcoholics, you know, really trying to reach someplace. And I find so many of the ones that are incredibly um, creative people. Mm-hmm. And I have to wonder if somehow this alcohol is serving as a substitute for them really diving into their creativity. I don't know if that's true. I don't know. Um, like I said, I'm not a sp- yeah. specialist in that area. But it's almost like we've we've missed something. And Joseph Campbell yes. really talks about this. Yes. Can you shed a little light on that for well, us? Well, I don't know if I can shed light on it, but I can he does share good, some experience. He does a good job oh, about discussing how we've kind of lost our connection. Yeah, by literalizing images. One of the things, one of his passions was to talk about mythology as metaphor. Um, one of the things that he said was, we, we tend to use the word myth and, and take it to mean lie. We'll say, oh, that's a myth. You know, that guy is just telling a myth. But that's a misuse of the word because a myth is not a lie. A myth is a metaphor. And a metaphor is is a, a way of communicating through symbol. 
Um, so there are things that we can't express in words, as you know. I mean, if you say I love you to your child, is that really expressing everything that you feel, you know? Or if you say you, I love you to your any loved one, is it really telling that person everything you feel about them? No, it's not. It's just a word. It can't explain everything we feel. So that's why we have love songs, and that's why we have art, and that's why we have all kinds of creativity, so that we can express what's inexpressible in words through symbol. Now, poetry is, is one way to do that through words, but that's oh, using this. words as symbol. It's using words as metaphor for something that we can't describe completely in words. Mm-hmm. So so that is an answer to, I don't know what question you just asked. Oh, it's okay. <laughs> well, but, but you brought us to poetry, which I think is an excellent example of somebody trying to communicate or to convey a very deep, almost abstract mm-hmm. feeling or emotion where you can't quite put it into an articulate fashion. Yeah. So you use the poetry as maybe a vehicle to get the words out yeah. to uh, create a, a sense, mm-hmm. sensual experience for yourself. Yes, exactly. Because the sensual is about the senses. So mm-hmm. you're trying to appeal to images, uh, visual images, auditory images, feeling, you know, sensatory uh, sensations that help you experience what you're trying to convey. Right. That help the to reader. evoke that in yes, somebody yes, to that evoke might it. be. Yeah. I remember what well. you were you were asking. You were talking about alcoholism and mm-hmm. yes, uh, you know, Joseph Campbell talks about as one example. I mean, there's so many substance abusing ab- mm-hmm. abuses, but it just seems so. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Out of balance for some reason. Like it could just be so easily resolved. I, like I know that's naive, oh. but um, I, <laughs> well, I don't need to be. Well, if you're addicted to something, it. I mean, it's it's pretty hard to quit. Like my addiction is like goldfish crackers, and I, I cannot <laughs> stop when I buy a box. I cannot stop until yeah. the last one's gone, I and so I, I know how that might feel. Yeah. It's, it's like a self control mechanism that isn't. But I think I want to touch on the larger issue of the fact that we have these little indications, which I would say an addiction would be is a little indication that the larger issues are out of balance. And Mm -hmm. by that, I mean, okay, somehow or another, I'm not fulfilled. So I find ways to, you know, you know, to, to, to feel better, to, Mm -hmm. you know, give yourself comfort. And that's what people are doing. But he really touches on how we're kind of out of contract with ourselves by Mm -hmm. not delving into these deeper, richer um, metaphors, as you'd like to say, and acknowledging that there is this whole other side to our life that, Mm -hmm. that, that they've been touching on throughout the centuries of time. You've got it. Exactly. That's exactly it. That's we can just end the interview because now you've got well, we've got ten more minutes. We no, got to keep talking no, about it. No, you've got. Oh, I can talk about this forever. But no, you've got it exactly, and and that's why it's so rich, and and that's why it's so wonderful to go experience art, you know, face to face, and and have that experience because it's something that's inexplicable that's communicated between a symbol and the person. It activates something inside you, and that takes me to Jungian psychology and archetypes which I can get to in a few minutes if you want. But back to the alcoholism, and, and Joseph Campbell sp- speaks about alcoholism too. And he says, think of what we used to call alcohol. We used to call it spirits. Right. You know, spirits. Mm-hmm. And he says, he looks at alcoholism as a search for spirit. Hmm. And spirit is what he's talking about. That first quote that you read about the... Um, I'll reread it. Yes, reread that. The the quote was, Myth is the secret opening through which the inexhaustible energies 
of the cosmos pour into human manifestation. Okay, it pours. Let's look at that verb. It pours, mm -hmm. like you would pour a drink. The inexhaustible energy of the universe. Like this beautiful thing we can all yes. tap into. And, you know, we say the Bible says God is a mystery beyond our understanding. Yes. The Native American traditions talk about the great mystery. They don't have one name for one God. They have many. Which, if we're drawing comparisons, would be their version of a Judeo-Christian church of God. We'll just say The that mystery. That. Yeah. Their great, mystery. great mystery. Um, they personify that by talking about grandmother and grandfather. But the great mystery is a concept that they relate to. Because they know that, and, and this is not just the Native American tradition, this is many other traditions around the world have a concept like this, where there is something beyond human understanding that's right should there. Try to tap into. Yes, you can tap into it. Mm -hmm. Anyone can tap into it. Mm -hmm. And and Joseph Campbell says that there are people who, who have an opening to this, who can experience spirit in it. And, and I don't mean that in the religious terminology. I, I just I mean in this in the generic spiritual terminology, who can experience this thing beyond our understanding, and don't know how to cope with it. You can channel it into art. You can channel it into writing or singing, or just the joy of living, or just philosophy. But there are people who who find it overwhelming and who need to. They either are searching for a way to handle that energy through the dampening effects of alcohol because alcohol is a depressant, depressant. that's right um so it's self-medicating in a way mm -hmm. um but then the other thing is though that you become physically addicted to alcoholism so there are really sure. two separate aspects to it and it's it's not necessarily only a search for spirit the addiction to alcohol but that can be a part of it um i think it's also uh my experience of just family and friends who struggle with addiction, there's a component of like obsessive compulsive behavior mm -hmm. that, that is Gets a part triggered. of the yeah. disease. Yeah. yeah. And I is, think it definitely runs in the family too. Like not, I come yeah. from an alcoholic uh, family background on my mom's mm -hmm. side. And you know, knowing that I have to be very careful right. with it. And right. so, yeah. Yeah. I, I couldn't be an alcoholic if I tried. I would just... <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can become addicted to so many other things. I'm sure I'll find something. <laughs> yeah. There are people who, who even say that you can become addicted to religion. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. I, yeah. And then I think I read recently that there's a study that says if you're too addicted to religion, it's a form of mental illness. Yeah. Well, it's obsessive compulsive behavior as well. And I'm not trained as a psychologist. Yeah professionally but i have a minor in depth psychology and that's how i see it but i could be wrong but that's how i see it it's what is depth psychology depth psychology is just um the study of the depths of the personality okay. uh, freud was one of the first ones and then jung was one of his students and jung carl jung is one of the uh, sort of the bastions of our our uh, curriculum at pacifica graduate institute and uh he he separated from Freud uh, as they as they worked together after a while because he saw some different things from Freud and and he sort of founded he had a his little own. more positive approach to it all, didn't he? Well, I think so. I mean, yeah. that's my personal opinion. I certainly remember that. When he went studying deeper. Too. Yeah. I mean, he went deeper. He he said, yeah, "What psychology. are these things that live in the human psyche? What what is that?" The archetypes. And the archetypes, mm -hmm. right? And um, he gave them Greek names some, sometimes, but but the basic ones are the the child, uh, the wise old person, the wise old man, the wise old woman, 
um, and the child and uh, the mother, the father, um, the goddess, the God mm-hmm. is the a, is goddess. an archetype. Yeah. And so he, he said, everyone has these aspects to their personality. And so at different times of life, different, different aspects are activated. And when you look at a symbol, a piece of art, a, a song, when you have a reaction to it, it's because there's a part of your psyche that is activated, that understands that symbol, that, that becomes enlivened by that symbol. And it's a chance for you to learn more about yourself and what you need to do. And I do believe everyone has a job on this planet. Everyone has a skill that's unique to them and that's wonderful. And by tracking your your inner response to things, that's how you find what you have to offer the world, what your gift is, which is part of the hero's journey. That's right. Okay. So I love how you said <laughs> tracking your response. That's a really internally focused process that yes. not too many people take the time to do that. How do you do that? Well, I started, um, I was going through a difficult time of, of life about 20 years ago. And I, I started to ask myself, what did I used to like to do? Like, I, I don't even know what I like to do anymore at that time. And I kind of, I did, I did what I call an excavation, a childhood excavation. I went back in my mind and I just tried to remember the times in my childhood that I was happiest, what I was doing at those moments, what made me happiest. And I started there. You know, I loved being outside. I loved climbing around on rocks. I loved being out in the wind. We used to play. We were Mary Poppins all the time with a, we used to try to catch the wind with our umbrellas and mm-hmm. fly, you know. Just like she did. <laughs> oh, you and, and others have loved dancing. Oh, I know. <laughs> Beth is a delightful lady. Dr. Boardman, sorry. <laughs> but I don't know everything. She knew everything. And see, we all want, we all have a piece of her inside of us. We have a wise person. She can person. be an archetype. <laughs> yeah, she is. She, she's an archetype of the wise person, the wise mm-hmm. old person. Um, she always had the answers. Well, so that's the way to do it is you start by excavating your childhood. We are drawing down on yes. our time here, and I just every time I do this, I think, "Gosh, could I just have a two-hour show?" I but know. you know, I probably would really stress out about how to fill it. But gee, the hour is just no problem. Oh, so, okay, if anybody wanted to get in touch with you, can we tell them about your blog? Yes, yes. Okay, so um, Dr. Boardman has a blog, dancingwolf.blogspot.com, and this is where you really explore your poetry. Yes. Um, is Poetry of all kinds, not just darkness poetry, is that correct? No, no, it's just spiritual poetry, I would call it. Okay, something coming from the well inside of mm-hmm. you that yeah. you're finding a joy in sharing that with others. And so, um, but if you're interested in, in digging a little deeper in the Joseph Campbell Foundation, again, that website site is www.jcf.org. Fascinating mm-hmm. body of work that he has has given us. And it's really neat to see somebody, especially here in Orange County, that um, is, is bringing that forth and sharing that with others in your roundtables and whatnot. Any final thoughts you want to oh, share with thank us? Thank you so much for inviting me to talk about this. I could talk about it for hours and it, it's there's so much richness to just to explore this topic. Um, I just would also say, if you're interested in studying mythology or depth psychology, uh, to check out Pacifica, Pacifica pacifica.edu. They also have public programs that are available, open to the public, that are really fun to go to. And that's how I started out there. And it's beautiful up Mm -hmm. there, Santa Barbara. Oh, it's lovely. And they have commuter programs. I mean, they're designed for adults with lives. Because you live down here while you Mm -hmm. attended. You just go there three days a month. 
That's oh, all. Hey, and the rest of it's your, on your own. I think I might sign up for that. That yeah. sounds good. <laughs> yeah, let's go, Heather. And just a note, if uh, you're driving in your car and you can't get down that website for the Joseph Campbell Foundation, I put it up on Twitter on our feed. Oh, so, very nice. Yeah. Thank okay. You. And we can actually, we can put Dr. Boardman's um, blog spot up there on Twitter, too. And yeah. People go. can feel free to contact me on Facebook, too, Beth Ann Boardman, PhD, if, if they want it. It's really a page where we just talk about this kind of stuff, poetry, mythology, and very pretty nice. pictures. And very pretty. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Dr. Boardman. Thank you so much. It's been lovely. Thank okay. you. Have a great day, everybody out there. So um, Counterspin is up next with uh, Matt Kaplan. He'll be in studio shortly. I haven't seen him in a long time. It's been a while since too. we've he done this handoff. The, uh, I know. Yeah. And then after very that nice. is 530, we'll be uh, Planetary Radio. And then we'll have music once again with Kyle and things that are square. And no baseball or basketball. Season's over, Woo-hoo! if you haven't noticed. Uh, this is 88.9 KCI FM in Irvine.